Matthew chapter 5, and our ongoing study of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, and along with it, it is the most misunderstood sermon. We are working through the Beatitudes. The sermon is set up basically as the Beatitudes, and then the rest of the sermon is an explanation of the Beatitudes. Uh, it was labeled Sermon on the Mount by the great Saint Augustine, Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, and it was given so because it was obviously preached on a mountain. Uh, as we saw in the introductory remarks, it was preached to the disciples, not to the masses. Uh, Jesus didn't call these men up to the mountain they came. Very important distinction to make. He did not call them to hear this teaching. They simply came because they had a desire to hear the teaching. That is very important to see. It is to those who want to know the truth that will find the truth. And so in Matthew chapter 5, he begins a series of Beatitudes in sequential order. The reason these Beatitudes and this whole sermon is, taken out of, is misunderstood is because it's taken out of the order of context within the sermon. If you simply watch the Beatitudes in its sequential order, ladder rung by ladder rung, you will begin to understand what these Beatitudes are really talking about. This is not something that man can do. None of these are things that any of us can do. We can't pull it off. Sin, the power of sin is too deep within us. This is a sermon that can only be accomplished when the life of Jesus is having full sway within the life of the believer. The Beatitudes start off with being poor in spirit. And I'm going to run through these quite rapidly so we can get to the merciful Beatitude and start there. But they start off with the poor in spirit because only those who see the depravity and the emptiness within are only those who can advance in the Christian faith. It's how a person gets saved. They see themselves as a sinner, as rebellious against God and of need of a Savior. The modern evangelical approach of offering Jesus toward the common sense of a man, look, you don't need to go to hell, you need to go to heaven, so just come to Jesus, get your free pass, and then move on, is not the New Testament way at all. Not the New Testament way of all. Uh, the Bible is very clear that man needs a Savior. If he needs a Savior, it's because he's lost and apart from God in his sin. Until a man sees that, and, and he can't see it on his own, the Holy, Spirit has to, the Holy Spirit has to point that out to him. Once it's pointed out, the man is in a state which the old theologians call the awakening. When they're awakened to their need, they're awakened to their understanding of Christ, they're awakened to that. That's why when you share the gospel with lost people, they look like they're in a comatose state, do they not? They haven't been awakened by the Holy Spirit. By all means, keep talking to them and keep sharing the gospel with them. But it takes the Holy Spirit to wake a man up to his need. Now, there is an awakening that falls short of salvation. There are people that are woken to their need for Christ who refuse Christ and walk away. But for those who he calls, they come and make that choice. There's free will involved, and there's the sovereignty of God and his choosing involved both all at the same time. Once we're in the faith, once we're a saved person, once we're a, a, a believer in the New Testament brand of way, which is Christ in us, the next step is our growth, our sanctification. That sanctification requires that we again go through the process of being awakened to something 
deep and dark within us. The Bible calls it the flesh. And until we see how awful it is within us, the potential of any kind of horrid sin we could possibly do, even though we're believers, we don't advance on to the next stage of growth. We must see it. It is not normal for a Christian to struggle as a Christian. Paul had a struggle in Romans 7, but he got through it. And he came to the end of it, and he came to this conclusion, that in my flesh dwells nothing, no good thing at all. And then he entered into the victory of Romans chapter 8. If a believer, if we are struggling, it is an indication that the flesh and the self-life is still in dominance. Because if his life is having its way, there is no struggle. There is the power of God is taking over, and then there's victory over that old sin nature, the power of sin. First step is being poor in spirit. When we see the it doesn't mean that we're weak. It doesn't mean that we're, it means we're poverty stricken to the point we have nothing, nothing. I'm going to read to you just a minute from R.T. Kendall's book on the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to show you, he's a good man and wrote some good things, and I'm getting some good things out of that book, but I'm going to show you an area where he, it's classic theologic mistakes that good men make because they misunderstand the power of sin when it talks about the Beatitudes in this sermon at all, okay? So we got poor in spirit, and then the next step in chapter 5, poor in spirit, and then we mourn. We mourn because of that flesh within us. Then we become very meek. And we looked at meekness in chapter 5, verse 5, as, as not taking ourselves seriously. Because whatever bad thing someone has to say about us, if they knew us like we really are, they could say a whole lot more. So there's no more defense of self. There's no more fighting for your own honor because there is none to fight for. What a happy free man that is, not to have to fight the citadel of everyone's attack against his old fortress. You know, it's... Come on in, it's, you know, it's, it's meekness. And, and then in verse 6, it talks about blessed are the hunger, hunger, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You as a believer get into a place where you understand by the Spirit of God that poverty, the mourning, the meekness, and all of a sudden an appetite comes. Now you can't make an appetite happen. You can't make it happen. Appetites just happen. They happen as a result of emptiness. Do you know that? We, we in America know very little about hunger because we're always eating something. But just lay off for a day or two and you'll figure it out. Hunger will come. See? So this emptiness brings a hunger for righteousness. And then the satisfaction comes. Now, we begin now with blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I want you to see these Beatitudes as we climb a mountain. The first three Beatitudes are a man understanding what's in dealing with himself. Climbing that mountain, he begins to realize poverty-stricken, mourning, meekness. He gets to the top of the mountain, and he begins to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's not his in his own flesh. He understands that he can't produce this kind of stuff, and so he gives up trying to produce it. When he gives up, God takes over and begins the right living within him. That's the, that's the top of the mountain. The next verse is how we deal now with everyone out there. 
because we're going to talk about being merciful, pure in heart. We're going to talk about being peacemakers. That's how we deal with people around us. The reason we don't deal well with people around us is not those around us. It's what's in here, not going up the side of the mountain of the first three Beatitudes. Do you understand? If you get this correctly understood, I'm trying to think of a joke right now, and it's just not coming. <laughs> sometimes there's segues we can work into. Sometimes there's not. So if I was fresher, was that Satan calling? I, that's an old joke. That's an old joke. Uh, anyway, okay. That's all right. I did that once. Uh, I, my, my phone rang during a service, and uh, I, I said, you know, it must be Satan calling. And after the service, I went down there. It was my sister calling me. And <laughs> I told her. She got a good kick out of it. So anyway, uh, okay, where were we? You can't rattle a guy who's done this all day because I'll never get back to the deal. All right, I'm on a roll here. All right, so, so we're hungering, thirsting after righteousness. Where was I? Thank you. Okay. Let's just go into blessed are the merciful. For they shall obtain mercy. All of a sudden, we got a problem. Because the very definition of mercy is not getting what I do deserve. Now, we're going to lay back on a biblical principle called the, the principle of non-contradiction. And it goes like this. There are no contradictions in Scripture. We are told that we receive mercy as a gift. We do not earn mercy. Mercy is not giving, given to us for something that we do. That's called justice. Mercy is given in place of justice. Not getting what we should get for what we have done. Everybody follow me? Now we know this is true. We know that as New Testament believers, the gift of mercy was given to us at the cross the moment we got saved. Our sins have been put away. God passed over us in mercy. And in the end, he will give us mercy at the judgment seat. We will, we, we will not pay for our sins. They have been paid for. So we know that the verse does not teach that I will receive mercy on the basis of being merciful to others. So let's look at the verse. Oh, by the way, let, let's go ahead and, and beat up R.T. Kendall for a second and uh, talk about his approach to it, which kind of shows. Are you ready? Kindle writes this. When you show mercy, the angels say, congratulations, you've been gradu graduated to a higher spiritual level. When you show mercy, not anger or justice, you enter into a new kind of relationship with God. Are you listening to that very carefully? You enter into the Father's blessing. In other words, something you've done brings the Father's blessing. It is like hearing the words come, you who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance. Now he quotes another verse. Again, this is a good man, but he's going to rely on law here. I want you to hear a law-based statement out of this book. It is when you know that you are pleasing, it is, it is, it is when you know you are pleasing to the Father, when you're showing mercy to others. Now, when do we know that we're pleasing to the Father? 
all the time. We're a constant pleasure to him because we are in Christ, and that's what he sees. So, so I just want you to hear this. The reason for this, you are being merciful like your father is merciful. You are passing the father's blessing to others. When, uh, and, and then he ends the chapter like this. He says this, it is the hardest thing in the world to do. No, it's an impossible thing for us to do. And yet the irony is, it is the fairest thing in the world to do. At that, he is appealing to human reasoning. Listen to the human reasoning he's appealing to. Not to show mercy is to be self-righteous and ungrateful. But God gives us a pragmatic reason for being merciful. It works. I want you to listen to that very intelligently. He is appealing to the idea that be merciful to other people. It works. He's appealing to human reason. It's like saying to a man, come to Jesus, you won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. You're appealing to a man's reason. The Bible always appeals to a man's heart, not his head. Okay? And then, it, and then he goes, uh, we will be shown mercy down the road. Count on it. Well, that's, that's a works-based approach to that verse, and that that's, that's contradicts what we know about mercy. Okay, chapter 5, verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful. Well, what does that mean to be merciful? It means when people have hurt you and you have an opportunity to hurt them, you don't. It means um, when you are in a position to pull vengeance, you do not. You hear a rumor about someone who you could hurt, because someday, sometime they hurt you. You could tell it, couldn't you? And you don't. Basically, it's a letting people off the hook for what they have done, because that's what the Lord did for us, being merciful. So blessed are those who show that kind of mercy and are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. They are the ones who show that they have received mercy. The ones who have received mercy are in a position to give mercy and no others. This is not something of human disposition. This is something that the Spirit of God works within our lives showing us the mercy that we got from Him. And we are passing it along by the Spirit of God to someone else. Now, in the end, we will obtain mercy, but we have obtained mercy. And we are the only ones who show mercy to others. Now, is it possible for a Christian not to be merciful? Yeah, sure. If they rely on the self-life and the flesh and, you know, they live carnally. Okay, possible for all of us. But we are the only ones that have the opportunity to show mercy because we have fully received mercy. So we fall back on the principle of non-contradiction. So we do not interpret this that on the basis of giving mercy out, we get mercy. No. On the basis of having received mercy, we now have God's life in us to give that mercy to other people. Okay? Look at the next beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. Notice it does not say the pure in conduct. 
person can be pure in conduct and yet in his heart not be pure at all. Notice this is the, the second beatitude after being merciful to others that gives a blessing to those who are pure in heart. The word pure means undivided, unified. It is the opposite of a divided heart. Yeah, I want to do this, but I also want to do that. It's the whole Romans 7 struggle, that which I really want to do, I find myself not doing, and the divided life. So blessed are those who have a unified, pure heart. Now again, we fall back on what we know to be true from the Pauline epistles, that our hearts have already been purified. What man can purify his own heart? No way. This is not something that we can do. This is something God has done for the believer. Now, the promise is in verse 8 that those who are pure in heart, for this is the blessing, for they shall see God. That is the apex of all religious activity, of any religion. Run to the Hindus, run to the Muslims, run to all of them. They all have a works-based way to finally see God. But Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. How is it, first of all, that we possibly could be pure in heart, and how does that help us see God? Listen very carefully. The blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sins. Amen? But it's done something more. The blood and the cross of Jesus Christ has created a pure heart within us. You say, well, good night, man. Apparently you're not scoping in on my heart because there's some ugly stuff coming out of there. What I'm telling you is how God sees you and the way you really, really are. This is the reality from God's perspective. Now, from your perspective and from my perspective, my heart has a long way to go, but it really doesn't. I was told for many years within a church body that the more you grow, the more pure your life becomes, the more pleasing you are to God. It's a little scale. It's a little track up the mountain, and you can chart it if you want. You know, on good weeks, your heart's probably an eight or nine. Witness to somebody, I'm a nine. You know, the next week you walk by something and look at something you probably shouldn't look at, and all of a sudden you're a four that week, you know, or you lost your temper, you, you got mad at another driver, now you're a two, and you're just constantly fluctuating with this number of purity within your life. That's not the New Testament way. The biblical way is God has fully cleansed your heart. Now, do you believe that? <laughs> God's declared it to be true. God has declared it to be true that you have no sin within you. Now, there's flesh within you. Yes, you have the ability to sin, but from his perspective, when he looks at you on your worst day, all he sees is Jesus Christ, and he is happy and pleased. You getting this? Now, I'm leading to a point, so follow me, okay? Because you've got to choose 
whether you're going to believe what your own heart tells you. And Jeremiah says that our heart is deceitful and corrupt and beyond even knowing how bad it is. So if, it, if it's a liar in there, it's going to tell you all kinds of things. You are either going to believe that or you're going to believe the book. The book says that we're pure in heart. When you begin to walk in that big R reality of that, there's something that happens to you. You, 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 you cease viewing yourself. You cease thinking about self. The focus of your life is not you anymore. It's him. And all of a sudden, you begin to see him everywhere you go. Do you understand? The fall into sin has created within us a self-absorbing spirit. My world, my kingdom, what's going to make me happy tonight? I'll tell you what's going to make me happy tonight. Some black walnut ice cream. <laughs> Almost went with a butter pecan, but I went with a black walnut. I might drizzle a little chocolate on top of that thing. I'll be in the gym in the morning. Don't worry about me. That's why I go to the gym, so I can have that black. But our whole lives are just absorbed with me and mine and, you know, what's going to happen to my family and my kids and my job and my life and my friends and my church. And so we're centered in, by the way, that's how kids come into life, do they not? Kids come into life, little kids come into, everything is all about them. That's why, uh, you know, I, I'm big on telling kids through a lot of different ways that you're not the center of this world. You know, will you come play with me? No, I'm busy. You go play by yourself. I'm reading. How cruel is that for Pop to do that? Now, once in a while, I'll go play with him, okay? I'll get down and wrestle with him. You know I do that. But a lot of times, just on purpose, I tell him, no, I'm not going to play with you right now. I'm reading. Okay, go on. Go on. Go on now. And what I'm teaching them you might think that's mean. Marie is going, yeah, that's mean. I can see that. <laughs> but I see it as teaching them, I've got a life, you've got a life. Maybe sometimes I'll play, but sometimes we come into life like that. Got it? Uh, there was a bunch of little kids that did experiments years ago. They all gave four-year-olds, they gave them a, an Oreo cookie and told all those kids that if you sit there with your Oreo cookie for 30 minutes, and don't eat it, you will get a second Oreo cookie. And they left the room. Some lasted a minute. Some lasted seven minutes. A few lasted 30 minutes and got their second Oreo cookie. They did a study on them years later. And do you know who did the best on SAT scores, college, and careers in life? The ones who waited 30 minutes. It's called delayed gratification. It's called, I don't get what I want right now. I'm going to go work for it, and then I'm going to get it later. It's one of the most essential things human beings need to understand. Well, Christianity comes along and says, you know, basically that our problems are we've all got ingrown eyeballs. You know, ingrown toenails. We've got ingrown eyeballs. Everything evolves around how it affects me. But when we understand that our hearts are pure by the blood of Jesus Christ, 
There's no more castles to defend. There's nothing more to prove to the Almighty because He has declared me bankrupt before Him and He has done everything for me to receive and enjoy His presence. I relax and quit looking at self. And when I get my eyes off me and my absorption with me, all of a sudden my eyes are open to something I've never seen before. God. I go around the corner and there He is. We get interrupted in something in the day and that's His interruption. A bright blue sky is His. By the way, do you know why the sky is blue? Do you know why it's blue? Bless you tonight. It's, it's because it's dust. Do you know that? If there weren't any dust in the atmosphere, do you know what color the sky would be? Black. Yes! Yes! That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So next time you see dust on that mantle, and you're like, I hate dust. God put the dust in the atmosphere to turn that sky blue. You know the two most, all right, for big points, young man, what are the two colors that are most pleasurable to the human eye? He's writing something down. Not even listening, he's gone. I'm glad to have a, a three-year-old for one minute during a sermon. There's two colors, two colors that are most pleasant to the human eye. Do you know what they are? Green and blue. Everywhere you look, God has painted to please us. Do you see that? Everywhere we go, we see you. But the reason that blessedness comes is not when you purify your heart because you can't do that and I can't either. But if I see my heart is perfectly pure, in my worst moments, I still praise and give him thanks and I get my eyes off me and I begin to see God. Now, physically see him? No. God is a spirit. But he showed up in a person. And Jesus said, he that hath seen me has seen the Father. It's a beautiful thing to walk through life and see God everywhere you are. Every situation. It makes the mundane exciting. It makes going to work a pleasure. Well, I've stretched too far now. <laughs> I've gone beyond my boundaries of theological thought there. Notice the next beatitude. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Well, what's a peacemaker? Um, it is not a peace-at-any-cost person. Some people would rather fight. I'm sorry would rather love than fight. They would rather compromise everything not to get in a spat. If you're like that, don't raise your hand, but I tended for a long time to be like that. Let's not fight, I'll just give in to everything. That is not what a peacemaker is at all. Um, Woodrow Wilson, president of... Uh, of the United States back in the 1920s made a tragic error. Uh, at the end of World War I, he went over to the Peace Accord. 
and he desired to create a League of Nations. Now, Wilson was a good Presbyterian, but he uh, really misunderstood human nature. He thought that if he just got a League of Nations, there would be no more wars, you know, World War, the, the war to end all wars. So he went over to the peace treaty, taking this thought of the League of Nations. It was one of several proposals that he brought with him. Uh, I'll just give you a short synopsis. England and France wanted to, wanted to drive Germany in the ground. They wanted to punish them severely. Wilson's proposals punished the Germans, but not that severely. Do you know Woodrow Wilson gave up at every turn in order to get his League of Nations? He compromised and gave in to the English and the French. And at the end of the day, Germany was so crushed by the punishment that those two nations, that Woodrow Wilson just turned his back and let it go, that it created the disaster of an economy that allowed a man like Adolf Hitler to come to power. Do you understand? There, nothing in history happens in a vacuum. If Germany hadn't been punished, if Woodrow Wilson would have stuck his guard and said, no, we're not punishing that deep, Hitler probably never would have happened. So a peacemaker is not one who gives in to everything just to make peace. And of course, the League of Nations was a huge success, as was the United Nations today. It sure ended all the wars, didn't it? Okay, so blessed are the peacemakers. They are not those who just compromise on everything. They are those who actively seek peace. They are those who seek peace with others, if it can be attained. They are those who, well, let me just be very practical. They are those who do not repeat a story that could hurt someone. They are those who don't bring information from one person to another and, and stir up the strife. Yep. There are things not to be said and not to be repeated. Wisdom knows what that is. And those who want peace between people don't, don't, don't do that sort of thing. Is that practical enough for you and I? I think it is. But they are those who speak well of one another and find the good in other people. This is a work of the Spirit of God within us. There are not those who criticize other people to other people, if I could be very practical. They are those who, uh, when, when our kids were small, uh, I would follow a, a practice, you know, because simply rivalries, they just always want to kill each other, right? There's just always, you know, you got a brother, you got a sister, you, there's moments you want, you really seriously try to kill them. And so there's a lot of fighting going on. And so when I saw that with John and, John and Whitney, I would pull one aside, and this is what I would say. I would say, hey, do you know how much Whitney loves you? Well, no. Well, let me tell you something she said about you once. And I would recall something sweet that she said about her brother. And you know what diffused everything? Sometimes I'd call Whitney and I'd say, you know, Whitney, do you know how much your brother loves you? The other day I heard him say this. She'd go, really, he said that? I didn't make it up. I want you to know I didn't make these things up. Now, if you've got to make it up, just make it up, you know, just. <laughs> no, don't make it up. 
You might embellish upon the truth a little, you know, just stretch the thing a little bit, you know, just, just make it bigger than it was. But, but, I, I, but after that, I saw a diffusion within my family between those kids. But blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, literally owned, as the children of God. Again, this is not something of, this is not something of personal disposition where certain people just always want to have peace. You know, that's not being a peacemaker. This is something that's supernatural of the life of Jesus inside of us that desires peace between men. By the way, the greatest way to be a peacemaker is to share the gospel. Share the love of Christ and share the gospel because when you lead someone to Christ, you're making peace between that man and God. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful.